that better? Good morning, everyone. Yay, there's only one of me. Okay. Uh, my name is Susan, and welcome to Unity Center for Positive Living. Today, we're going to open with the daily word, and the word for today is faith. I carry my faith in God with me throughout the day. I keep my faith at the forefront of my awareness, taking a few minutes in the morning to pause, breathe deeply, and place my awareness on the presence of God. I feel energized and strengthened. I expect all good things. As the day progresses, I pause again for a moment or two and affirm, God and I are one. I have faith that God, my source, is with me in everything I think, say, and do. At night, I look back on the events of the day and savor the moments in which God's presence felt especially strong. I have faith that awakening from a restful night's sleep, hearing a kind remark, enjoying time in nature, or spending quality time with a loved one, are ways to feel the presence of God within and around me. And from First Chronicles 23, 30, and they shall stand every morning thanking and praising the Lord, and likewise at evening. Join us while we sing Surely the Presence, and Alice and Linda will lead us in that.
Hi, Terry. Hi, Joyce. It's me, Dierica. Hi. Hi, Joyce. That friend. Hi, Derek. Joyce is talking on mute. How is she doing that? <laughs> don't know. I don't hear her. <laughs> I see her lips moving, but she's on mute. Yeah. <laughs> Is that better now? <laughs> yeah, I that's better now. I was saying good morning to Fred and, and, and you're on mute too. Who's on mute? Danon. Oh. <laughs> and so is you. Hi. Johnny's waving. I saw him. that. Oh. Oh. Hi, Dan, now you're on. Looks like Fred's out You bet I am indeed. That's beautiful day, about 70 degrees. That's nice. a beautiful. Enjoy. Yep, I, I am indeed. <laughs> okay, can you still hear me? Okay, good morning, Derica and Danny. And Fred. And Joyce. And Joyce. Good morning. Yay. Unity. We're so happy you're all with us. Okay. Goodbye. So now it's time for announcements. I can do this because I can read. Uh, so today, uh, the Circle America Book and Film Club meets from 3 to 4.30. And the discussion today is about um, Ava DuVernay's film, Origin. And I know that it's probably not possible to find it in local theaters, but there are a lot of YouTube videos related to it and interviews and stuff. So there you go. Uh, I also wanted to mention that uh, last week our speaker was uh, Mariette, and you may recall she had some challenges with her screen sharing and her slides. She redid that. And Tom has put that up on the website, and it's really great. Um, really great. It's worth watching. So, uh, I guess I'll also say, I'm still really enthusiastic about the Lenten booklet. It, this year it seems better than ever to me, and I don't know if it is or if it's me or what, but there you go. And also, we have many copies, several copies of Keep the True Limp, um, Charles Fillmore's classic. And one of the things I really like about it, you know, it has daily readings and all, and um, verses to study, but it really talks a lot about the unity principles and folk powers, and it's a little gem. There are a few background to that too, which brings us. Oh, wait, there's more. We have a card that we received from Fred that's got an awesome owl. I'm going to call it a barn owl until someone corrects me. And it says, hello, y'all. This is a southern email. May all your days be happy and peaceful. 
Lots of love from, oh my gosh, I can't say it. The name of his town. Chukawiddity. Chukawiddity. It's not right, sure. Uh, anyway, love from Sandy and Fred and a wise old owl. So if we don't know his exact species, we will be quiet. Okay, I'll be quiet now. Uh, do any of you have any announcements? Well then, we'll move on to say our unity statement. So if you will join me in this, we believe in our oneness with all life and the power of love. We teach universal principles and values as taught by Jesus and others, revealing the one God presence. We practice prayer, meditation, and service
today our reading will be brought to us by Tom. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. As Susan said, 40 days, let go, let God, Lent 2024, great, great little booklet. And it's free for you. Um, you get paper copy um, online or digital copy, and you get it delivered directly to your mailbox that moment. Mm -hmm. All right, so for the second Sunday of Lent, February 25th, Jesus let go of others' approval. This is by Reverend Ellen Devonport. Jesus was not a people pleaser. He never seemed to worry what others would think of him or how they might react, even when they knew, or even when he knew, they would be displeased. The earliest story of Jesus letting go of approval was in childhood when he stayed behind at the temple after Passover, and that's in Luke 2. He offered no apology when his parents found him three days later. He said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Later, when he was teaching, healing, and surrounded by crowds, his family tried to reach him. In Mark's version, they feared Jesus was losing his mind and wanted to restrain him. And that's in Mark 3. In all Gospels, his reaction was the same when he told his family was outside. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And that's also in Mark 3. He seemed to feel no obligation to meet others' expectations, and he taught this lesson to Martha when he visited her home. She was bustling around, ensuring everyone was fed and comfortable, while her sister Mary sat at Jesus' feet, listening. Martha demanded that Jesus tell Mary to get up and help her. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus knew people talked about him. At one point, he said he was being compared to John the Baptist, neither of them favorably. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of God has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of the tax collectors and the sinners, like in Luke 7. He faced outright hostility from the scribes and the Pharisees. He was feared as a zealot or a revolutionary who would lead an insurrection. No doubt he was the talk of Jerusalem after he turned over the tables in the temple. Jesus was not universally loved even in his hometown of Nazareth. That's from Mark 6. They already knew him as the son of Mary and a carpenter, and their reaction was basically, who does he think he is? Jesus lamented to his disciples, Prophets are not known without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. 
Later, as he prepared his disciples to go out on their own, Jesus cautioned them not to be upset. They were rejected. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. And that's Matthew 10. Never suggested that they could please all the people all of the time.
God and expression. I am truly thankful for all the good I already experienced. I am growing more prosperous every day. I am healthy, active, whole, and happy. I am always growing and expanding into the fulfillment of my potential. I am at peace, knowing that everything I need comes to me in the perfect time and in the perfect Creator, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, I am. I am thy kingdom come, I am thy will being done. I am on earth, even as I am in heaven. I am giving this day daily bread to all. I am forgiving all life, even as I am also all life forgiving me. I am leading all people from temptation. I am delivering all people from error, for I am the kingdom, I am the power, and I am the glory of God in eternal immortal manifestation. Always I am. Down that path and how to talk to you about that path. 
So last month, I told you about me. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Not about you. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. And uh, this month, I was like, okay, so the first stage. No, no, we can't even hit the first stage yet because there's like all of this other stuff that happens before this author even starts talking about these stages. So I don't even know how long it's going to take us to get to Bethlehem, but people, we are going to get there together. Okay. All right. It's the only way it's going to happen is all of us together. So um, here's the dealio. This trip to Bethlehem, it is an Advent journey. We are currently in Lent, but that's okay. All right. Because um, as we're going to talk about, there's no definitive answer as to when Christmas actually happened. So it's going to happen whenever we get there. And uh, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Story, right? My favorite iteration of it is The Muppets Christmas Carol. If you have not seen The Muppets Christmas Carol, it's pretty awesome. It's full of music and Michael Caine and Muppets, okay? And I don't know if it's in the original Christmas Story because I haven't read that yet, but there's a line at the end where he says he'll keep Christmas in his heart all the year round. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna find the Christmas in our heart and we're just gonna keep doing that, okay? So ladies and gentlemen, we are gonna start this adventure preparing for the Christ light. And we're gonna start that by going back and forth between my notes in this fabulous little book, all right? If uh, you have forgotten, we are looking at the trip to Bethlehem and this is Hypatia Hasbrock, is how I would say that the traditional Christmas story as a guide to spiritual transformation. So as we get into the beginning of this book, there's lots of foundation. And in education, you have to have some foundation or some background knowledge before you can start a new lesson. So we're gonna continue with some foundation stuff today. All right, so foundation stuff, Bible stories. Bible stories have three different levels of meaning, if you're not aware, we have the literal meaning where a lot of the Christian world likes to live is in the literal meaning of the story. So that is, of course, where what is said is what is, okay? And then there is, I'm gonna take my shoes off because you're gonna roll this, all right. And then there's the moral level, right? The lesson that's being taught through that story. Those are good. Aesop Fables has a lot of those. No wonder into the woods alone. Right? The Bible is chock full of them also. And then there is what we hear really, really like, and that's that metaphysical level. Right? So this is written as the implied lesson about the psychological and spiritual growth and development of so that is actually looking at it at a truly personal level at our own spiritual and psychological growth, which that's what we're here to do, right? Grow as humans. Now the Christmas story, fabulous story. So we have the literal meaning. It's the birth of Christ, right? Jesus, the fully human and fully divine. What a contradiction that is. <laughs> Then we have the moral. What happens when people cooperate with God's plan? Okay. 
And then we have the metaphysical. And this is the journey to the place within ourselves where we can find our full humanity and our own divinity. And this is the inner Christ. That is the journey that we are on, is to find it, foster it, and orbit. So metaphysicians, that's a fun word, they distinguish between fact and truth. Now, many people think that facts are truth. This is not so. Facts, they composite literal and the surface meaning of anything, right? Okay. Then truth, that is not relative. Truth does not change. Truth refers to the invisible, eternal principles which underlie everything that appears in the outer world. They're underneath those factual surface things. All right, with me so far? Yeah. Awesome. Myths. Now, it had never occurred to me to think of biblical stories as myths. I had thought of them as good stories. I had thought of them as parables. I never really thought of them as a myth. I think myths, I think Greece. <laughs> I think Hercules. Right? Greek mythology. At school, when we start to study Greece, the kids all want to know if we're going to study Greek mythology. So that's where my brain goes. But it never really occurs to me to think the Bible as mythical. Mythical creatures are unicorns. Maybe a truly integrated divine human is mythical. I don't know. We'll find out. All right, so myths are symbolic stories that stand for or point to truth. Isn't that what a Bible story is? Yeah. It's a symbolic story that points to truth. All right. So, we're going to get in. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm kind of excited today. All right. So, <laughs> with myths. All right. So, ancient myths. So, I teach ancient history. Now I teach little pockets of ancient history, right? To sixth grade. It's a really broad view of pockets of ancient history. But I can tell you that with that and with my own, we'll say slight interest in <laughs> all things kind of religious e in nature, okay? We will say that ancient myths widely separated around the globe, from various cultures, all share very similar stories, namely the oddly circumstanced conception, birth, death, and resurrection of a deity. All right? So that being the case, as a great myth, the Jesus story is very similar to these stories around the world, right? And so the church, people of the church, they believed that this meant that Jesus was the realization of these stories. That this means that these stories are real and this one is the real story. This one is true. The most. Right? All those other ones, they're myths. They are ancient legends. They are pagan stories. This one's true because this one's ours. Okay? 
And yet, many scholars conclude that because it falls into the category of all of these other ancient belief systems, that he didn't live. That it's not real. It's yet another one of those stories. And Audrey very often tells us that in Unity, we believe that maybe he lived, maybe he didn't, maybe it's literal, maybe it's not. You know, that's one of the things I love is that we are free to make that decision for ourselves, right? I want to read to you this little snippet here. It's one of the things that I highlighted in my fabulous little book. Where she says, if Jesus did not exist. But if Jesus did not exist, an incredible thing must have happened. Imagine that a committee of early first century Jews, the 12 disciples, invented a Messiah who did not resemble the kind of man they hoped could oust the hated Romans from their land. Next, they would have had to fabricate a biography out of myths, not only from the religion of the Romans, but also from the religions of Egyptians, Greeks, and Syrians, to mention some they may have known, Hindus, Buddhists, and Chinese, with which they were not acquainted. Then they had to attribute to him many overlooked teachings from their own sacred scriptures and ascribe to him such unpopular behavior as acceptance of women as equals, tolerance of non-Jews, friendship with sinners, and forgiveness of Romans. They deliberately portrayed themselves as often being stupid or selfish and behaving shamefully. Then, to disseminate the entire fiction, they knowingly risked their lives. Some even suffered death while steadily proclaiming faith to their lie. The whole scenario, including the fate of those who invented it, so appealed to Jews and Gentiles that within a generation, the new religion attracted so many followers that Roman rulers felt threatened enough to persecute and martyr converts and community members. So if he didn't exist, why would these people create these dismissives in and of itself, right? Okay, so it's an incredible hypothesis, but a little far-fetched. So as we continue, yeah. So we have a note here that light is a recurring symbol of spirit and of the divine. My husband shared with me um, quite some time ago now, I think he actually Summit here, I'm not sure how we managed to do that. But it was this little video of the moment of inception. <laughs> it is the most amazing thing. It shows the egg and the little sperm, right? And the moment that the sperm penetrates the egg, this halo of light appears. You see where there is. Light, there is light. And it's just, it's an amazing visual that even at our most basic selves, that moment in which we are created on a physical plane, there is light. Now, this we're going to rely heavily on my book. I have little numbers and notes. 
good at number two, the contradicting stories. Okay, this is where it gets fun. We have this birth story of Jesus, and I'm going to, for our meditation today, just fair warning, read to you the entire compiled birth story of Jesus. Because it had never occurred to me in all of my life growing up as a child, thinking to, we'll say, kindly early adulthood, that it was not a single story that was put in the Bible. This is the story of the birth of Jesus. What we have is a compilation of multiple pieces that have all come together to create what we see as this Christ story. So the earliest mentions of the birth of Jesus is in the letter of Paul to the Romans. So at this point, we're questioning whether Christ is divine or now, as the story goes, the angel came down, told Mary that she was going to conceive of a child, that child was going to be with God, and so on and so forth, and that she was a virgin. However, the earliest mention of the birth of Jesus is in the letter of Paul to the Romans, probably written in AD 56 or 57. And at the beginning of the letter, Paul identifies himself the servant of Jesus Christ, who has descended, Jesus, has descended from David according to the flesh, and designated Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Okay. So, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. Which of these parents were descended? Joseph was descended. According to the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, Joseph, not Mary, was a descendant of David. So in this obscure statement, which I find interesting because then in various pieces where it talks of Jesus and it mentions this particular piece, it goes straight to the Son of God and the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection of the dead. There's very little reference to this piece before where it states that Jesus was descended by the flesh from David. And then you have the other genealogies that state that Joseph was the descendant of David, not Mary. So we have these interesting contradictions. So as we look at these contradictions, okay, here's a, here's a slew of them. Are you ready? Okay. A long time passed between the birth of Jesus and the writing of the gospel according to Luke, which has the first account of it. Okay, so we're on board with that. A long time. It was written sometime between AD 80 and 85, so more than 50 years after the crucifixion. I don't know that I'll remember anything 50 years after it happened, at least not in any kind of detail. Luke has a prologue included in the retelling of the story at the end of this chapter, we'll get to, which tells about the miraculous conception of John the Baptist as well as that of Jesus. Then he tells about the census, the trip to Bethlehem, the birth of the stable, 
the visit of the shepherds, and after all required ceremonies surrounding births have been performed in Jerusalem, the return to Nazareth. Okay, so these are the things that Luke talks about. The Gospel according to Matthew, written approximately AD 90, so even later, right, is quite different. Matthew mentions Mary's pregnancy by the Holy Spirit, but implies that Jesus was born in a house. Apparently Joseph's house in Bethlehem. This account has the visit of wise men from the east who followed a mysterious star that was seen by no one else. Only Matthew tells of Herod's killing of infants, the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt, and because according to the writer, Mary and Joseph originally lived in Bethlehem, the move to Nazareth. So we have some slightly different ideas of how this all happened. All right, some astronomers believe that the 7 BC conjunction, this is fun if you happen to like astrology, um, astronomy, there we go, that's the right word, conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that occurred in the constellations of Pisces, which astrologers of the time considered the house of the Hebrew, may have been the origin of the legend of the star. In all probability, the author did not think stars are what astronomers have discovered them to be gigantic, inanimate, swirling masses of energy inconceivably far away from Earth. To the ancients, stars were considered celestial entities, angel-like beings, and many passages in the Bible indicate that the Jews shared that belief. So we're talking about this whole alignment of the stars and the planets may have created something really bright in the sky. Okay. That's fairly cool. All right. So, talking briefly about the timing of Christmas. Now, I mentioned, you know, we don't really know when it happened. The reality is that the reason why, we're not familiar, the reason why December 25th was chosen was because it's really, really close to get to December 21st when we celebrate, is it the solstice? Okay, the solstice. And what it was was that you had the pagan religions had these grand celebrations surrounding the solstice, which happens to be the rebirth of the light. It's the time in which the sun starts to come earlier and stay longer. It's when the days begin to lengthen, and it is this rebirth of the light. And so they chose this time. And in fact, many of the traditions that we have surrounding Christmas date back to the pagans and this, this kind of forcing them into Christianity by adopting things that were familiar to them in a time that was familiar to them to make it easier to convert to Christianity. The reality is that our shepherds were watching their flocks by night. And the reality is that the middle of December <laughs> is the least likely time that they're going to be hanging out on the night shift in the middle of the fields with their sheep bits. Okay? So it's more likely that the birth, if it did happen, was later. <laughs> or 
or later in this All right, let's see. I think we're wrapping up with our foundational stuff. So if we take a look back, we've got myths, right? This is great myth that if it truly is a myth, it's a pretty unbelievable one, right? I can hold on to the idea that the Christ story is true in some capacity, right? I can hold on to that because the alternative is ludicrous. I'm going to throw that out there. It's ludicrous that some group of people got together and they made up this story and they persecuted themselves and they made their life horrible also that we could have this This doesn't make sense to me. So I'm just going to go based on what I Jesus lived. Okay, now whether Jesus lived and everything happened exactly like they say that's hard to swallow because they can't even agree with themselves. Okay? So we have some contradictions. We have some foundational story. We have some things that may be true, some things that may not. And we are going to find out where our Christ is. We are going to dig for it and help it be the best and brightest Christ life that it can be over the next however many months it takes us to get through the steps that are laid out in this fabulous little book. Are you with me? Yes. Hot diggity. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, do you want to hear the traditional story as it is compiled all together? All right. So, settle in for story time with Mrs. Selleck, as the children would call it. Okay. Deep breath. In the final years that Herod the Great reigned as Rome's there we go, better. As Rome's puppet king in Judea, some remarkable events occurred. They began when an angel appeared to a priest named Zechariah. He lived in a hill town of Judah with his wife Elizabeth. They were childless and elderly. Zechariah had gone to Jerusalem for his annual two-week duty as a priest in the temple, when by lot, he was chosen to go alone to burn incense on the altar. While the people outside prayed, he lit the incense. At that moment, an angel appeared, standing on the right side of the altar. The sight frightened the old man, but his fear changed to bewilderment. When the angel said, do not be afraid. Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in, at his birth. The angel explained that John would be a prophet like Elijah, but his special mission would be to turn the sons of Israel back to God and help people prepare to receive the Lord. When Zechariah protested that both he and his wife were too old, the angel reproved him, saying, I am Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. He added that because Zechariah did not believe him, he would be unable to speak until after the child was born. Outside, the people waited, wondering why the priest was so long at the altar. But when Zechariah came out and could not speak, they realized that he must have had a vision. At the end of the two weeks, he returned to his home. 
Soon afterwards, Elizabeth learned she was pregnant. For five months, she stayed in seclusion, giving thanks that God had taken away her barrenness. In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent Gabriel to her kinswoman, Mary, who lived in Nazareth in Galilee. Mary was a virgin and betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house and lineage of David. Gabriel startled Mary with his greeting, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Then he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear, bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He then told her that God would give her son the throne of David, and he would rule over the house of Jacob forever. Mary replied, How can this be, since I have no husband? The angel explained that the Holy Spirit would cause the miracle, and the child would be holy, the Son of God. Then he told her that her aged kinswoman, Elizabeth, who had been barren, was now six months pregnant with a son, because with God nothing will be impossible. Mary ceased arguing and said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Gabriel disappeared. In a few days, Mary hurried to visit her kinswoman. She entered Zechariah's house, calling out to her cousin. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, her baby moved within her, and she was inspired to explain, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there should be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary replied with a prayer that praised God and expressed her complete acceptance of her task. She remained with Elizabeth for the three months and returned to Nazareth just before Elizabeth had her baby. When Elizabeth's baby was born, her neighbors and kinsfolk were very happy that God had taken away her barrenness. On the eighth day, the day when a baby boy was to be circumcised and named, the people thought the child should be named after her father. But Elizabeth said, no, not so. He shall be called John. It was customary to name a child after someone in the family. And the people turned to Zechariah to ask him for the name. Zechariah asked for a tablet and wrote, his name is John. At that moment, he regained his speech and immediately blessed God. The people then realized that God had worked a miracle and the baby was special. As for Zechariah, he was inspired and in a long prayer, he dedicated to John to prepare the way when Mary returned to Nazareth, Joseph realized that though he and Mary were not yet married, she was pregnant. He was a just man and did not want to shame her. So because in those days a betrothal was as binding as marriage, he decided to divorce her secretly. But in a dream, 
Gabriel appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make Mary your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When he awoke, Joseph obeyed the angel. He married Mary, but he did not consummate the marriage until after the baby was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Joseph had to go to trial go to his tribal city to register in the first world census ordered by Roman Emperor Augustus. Bethlehem was the city of David's tribe, the one to which Joseph belonged. It was a four or five day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and Mary would soon have the child, so Joseph had her ride on his ass. When Mary and Joseph arrived, Bethlehem was crowded Though there was no room in the inn, the innkeeper, seeing Mary's condition, let them and the ass stay in the stable, a cave in the side of the hill where he kept his ox. Right away, the baby was born. Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger. That night, shepherds, watching their flock in a nearby field, were terrified and almost blinded by a great light. Then Gabriel appeared and said, be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel told them where to find the child, and then a heavenly choir joined him. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The angels disappeared and the shepherds hurried to Bethlehem. They found Mary and Joseph and the babe in the manger. They knelt, presented their gift of a lamb, and reported what the angel had said. Mary was very quiet as she listened. As the shepherds returned to the fields, they glorified God for all they had seen and heard. On the eighth day, the day of circumcision, Joseph obeyed the angel and named the child Jesus. The family moved to a house in Bethlehem where they could comfortably wait for the required two months to pass before they could go to the temple of Jerusalem and fulfill the law of Moses with purification rites. The sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons and to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. The day arrived at the temple door. There was an old man named Simeon, a righteous, and devout man who had had a revelation that he would not die until he had seen the promised savior of Israel. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Simeon entered the temple, and when the parents brought in the Christ child, he took the child in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples. I light a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. Then Simeon blessed the parents and said to Mary, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, 
and for a sign that is spoken against, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. A prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Femuel, of the tribe of Asher, was also there. She was an 84-year-old widow whose husband had died seven years after their marriage. Since then, she had remained in the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She joined Mary, Joseph, and Simeon and thanked God and spoke of God to everyone who was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Following the ceremonies, the family went back to Bethlehem. Time passed. Then, according to Matthew, three magi, wise men from the east, rode their camels into Jerusalem asking people, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When word of them and their question reached Herod, he felt threatened. He called the chief priests and scribes together and asked them where the prophesied king would be born. They said in Bethlehem of Judah and quoted the prophet Micah. After the priests and scribes left, Herod secretly summoned the Magi. From them, he learned that they had first seen the star over a year before. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Of course, that is not what Herod planned to do. The star which they had seen in the east led the Magi to the house where the baby was. With joy, they went into the house, and when they saw Mary and her child, they bowed down to worship him and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That night, they were warned of a dream, not in a dream, not to go back to Herod. So they departed for their own country by a different route. That same night, Gabriel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and put Mary and the baby on the ass and immediately started the journey to Egypt. Herod was so furious when the Magi did not return to him to tell him exactly where the baby was, that he had his troops kill all the male children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old or younger. But Herod could not be sure that the special child had been killed, and the uncertainty made him almost mad and very ill. He died only a year or so after the murder of all those innocent children. In Egypt, Gabriel visited Joseph in a dream once more to say, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Joseph obeyed, but when the family reached Israel, he heard that Herod's son was the new ruler of Judea, and he was afraid to go back to the house in Bethlehem. As a result of another warning dream, he took the child and Mary directly to Nazareth in Galilee. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we will be passing in the idea of the And with that, I thank you. Oh, Eileen, that was great. And it's going to be a super trip. And we're not going to let any of those kids in the back seat say, are we there yet? <laughs> I don't think that kid's going to Thank you. Now it's our opportunity to give. We are so grateful to be in the spirit of generosity and the giving of our time, talent, and treasure. We welcome each of these gifts from you as a member of our spiritual community. And we will say our offering prayer together to both our offerings and our hands and hearts. Divine love through me blesses and multiplies all that I have, all that I give, all that I receive, and all that I am. Bless these gifts and send them forth to heal, bless, and prosper. They are evidence of our faith and belief. They do good work in the world and return to us multiplied abundantly and increased. And it's time for our healing prayer. We would like to focus our collective. Members of our church have requested that we send our healing prayers to all people and animals displaced by war and natural disasters, to members of our communities who struggle to meet basic human needs, those who feel troubles for, and those. Beloved Mother, Father, God, we ask for the fullest and greatest good for all, 
and endeavor to see them through your eyes, and then all are saved by the And together, let's say our prayer of perfection. The light of God surrounds us, the love of God enfolds us, the power of God protects us, the presence of God watches over us. Wherever we are, God is, and all is well. And it's time for our peace song, so you could stand and circle up. And while you're doing that, I want to thank people here and elsewhere who helped with this service today. Eileen, our speaker, uh, Dallas and Linda, the musician, Johnny, the slide. Creator extraordinaire, Tom for the technical things, and you all for being here. We are.